0: Hello and welcome to Epochs number 121 and uh, I'm joined by Luca Johnson, how are you?
1: Hello, Uh, yes, I'm very very good, thank you Bo, I'm really excited to be getting into such an icon.
0: Right, yeah, well, uh, I mean, you're a... um a contributor for the website. You've written a fair few articles for us now. I have, yes. And we've had a couple of conversations on my channel, History Bro, which everyone should be subscribed to. But you've got your own channel as well.
1: Just a little one, yes, just a trifle. Amiable arguments. Amiable arguments, So if anyone's
0: interested, please do subscribe to that as well. Uh, But today we're going to talk about one of the greatest statesmen England, Britain, has ever had.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh,
0: One of the greatest Prime Ministers, uh, Mr. William Pitt, the Younger. The Younger, yes. Uh, Because we're both big, interested fans of his life and times.
1: Definitely. And I think another reason why it was really important to, to pick Pitt the Younger, as it were, for this topic is because sort of in the lead up to coming and doing this with you, I've sort of been testing the waters a little bit with just people at work and my family and just colleagues. And, oh, yeah, I'm going to be talking about um, Pitt the Younger, who, you know, or he, he's sort of fallen by the wayside a bit in, in the public consciousness. And you can feel that we're, we're sort of losing his memory and a lot of the the greatness of what he stood for. And so I, I hope that we can here today do a little something to breathe a bit of life back into that that legacy that's so well deserved.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he's uh, he he was prime minister all in all for something like. 19, 20 odd years. Yes. I think only Walpole really beats him for the longest time as PM. Yes.
1: Um, and I, as I understand it, longest serving wartime right. Prime Minister. Right, yeah. Longer than Churchill, longer than um, Thatcher, any of them.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he saw us through some really rocky times. He's sort of the pilot in the storm some people have said. A pilot, obviously, the old-fashioned term, like a captain of a ship. Yeah, he wasn't in the Spitfire. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, A a pilot in the storm that saw us through some very tumultuous times. So his dates, just to put it in context, as PM anyway, is the very late 18th century and the very early 19th century, and sort of the beginning part of Napoleon's time Mm. on the stage of history so very very tumultuous times but we'll go through it all we will and um i mean one thing i'd like to say is is what you mentioned there is that most people unless you're uh you know into particularly into napoleon or the late 18th century or parliamentary history Mm. you'd probably be forgiven for not hearing of him i mean i my earliest memory was in blackadder (laughs) Blackadder (laughs) exactly the same with Pitt the younger, or Pitt the even younger
1: The embryo Pick the embryo The glint in the milkman's eye <laughs> Yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yes uh, But he was extraordinarily young That's sort of the headline Yes Is that not only was he sort of a great statesman And PM for a very, very long time But the youngest Prime Minister ever
1: And probably will never be repeated again Seems I don't unlikely, think the it? circumstances that led to his rise Just simply Certainly couldn't be emulated in today's political climate, and it's very hard to see how uh, a lot of, well as we'll go into the factors that led to his rise, they they don't seem destined to rise again in quite the same way.
0: It was a sp- sort of a special set of circumstances, like a perfect storm in a way, yes. of, of events, he was sort of at exactly the right person at the right time uh, for something like that to happen. Because mm. he was 24, if anyone doesn't know, he was 24 yes. when he became Prime Minister.
1: And he'd been Uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Before that, briefly, at the age of 23.
0: Yeah, so an an MP at 21, Chancellor of the Exchequer at 23, and PM at 24.
1: And for the whole time he was Prime Minister, he was also Chancellor of the Exchequer. He did both jobs simultaneously.
0: Which we don't really get now these days, because I think this will come up a lot in this Mm. conversation, is that politics was just done very differently, or quite differently anyway. In the late eighteenth century, uh, but uh, we'll get to all that in time. For sure. Um, so, do you want to start with um, maybe his father, or, or I'll let you. I'll let you take the reins. How no, do you I, want to start?
1: I mean, I entirely agree. It's impossible to understand the younger without seeing him through the prism of who was Pitt the Elder, um, and his father, um, Pitt the Elder. So, the Pitts, I think, is the best place to start. The, the Pitt family um, had sort of had inklings of influence in the courts since the time of Elizabeth and James the but it's not really until Pitt, the elder's grandfather, Thomas, uh, nicknamed Diamond Pitt, mm-hmm. came back from India with a, a great fortune behind him that he sort of laid the foundations for them to become a real uh, family of prestige and standing. And Pitt, the, the elder, uh, was by all accounts, the, it sounds like a, a bit of a cliché, but he was the Churchill of his time. He was a wartime prime minister during the, the largest uh, confronta- global confrontation that Britain had been embroiled in at that time, in the Seven Years' War. And he was his nickname, his moniker, was the Great Commoner because he refused to take a title. And he was very much seen as a man apart from the establishment, who was fighting for the common interests of the English and the British. You know, who'd sort of grown up in this system uh, that had been created since the Acts of Union in 1707.
0: Yeah, so the Pitt family were, as you say, before before Pitt the Younger's father Hmm. was sort of squire level. Yeah. Would you say? Something like that? Yeah But they'd had sort of men in Parliament for quite a few generations, as you say um, But never raising to become sort of um, great statesmen or anything Then his grandfather, yeah, Diamond, Thomas Diamond Pit um, I'm sure you know the story, but anyone out there who doesn't He came back from India, he'd bought a diamond in India giant, some sort of giant diamond, for thousands, tens of thousands of pounds, Mm -hmm. but then sold it for hundreds of thousands of pounds when he got back to Europe. Yes. And so this this Squire family suddenly find themselves sort of immensely wealthy. A hundred, two hundred grand in this sort of mid-18th century is a a giant fortune, isn't it? A giant fortune.
1: Enormously, Um,
0: enormously. And you needed lots of money back then to get into politics, more so Mm -hmm. even than now, because American politics is, Quite different to British politics. In American politics, famously, you need lots and lots of money to run for Congress or the Senate. Britain nowadays isn't like that. There's a there's a cap, isn't there? You're really not allowed by law to spend um, all that much money on campaigning. But that's now. In the 18th century, it wasn't the case with and with the. uh, And this is one of the very sort of profound differences to today's politics is that you uh, the the electorate was much much smaller. Yes, but Um, bribery was much, much more pervasive. So in other words, you you bribed your way into Parliament, uh, uh, like a, a lawful type of bribing. You just give people lots of gifts and drink to get them to vote for oh, you. Oh yeah,
1: for sure. It was um Georgian elections were uh, <laughs> colorful, hmm. I suppose you could describe it as. I, there's one particular anecdote. I can't remember particularly which borough or constituency it was, but uh, they had 1,500 voters in that constituency. And just to be on the safe side, the uh the the patron who was sort of fortifying his seat as it were made sure to buy 4,000 uh Kegsvale just in case. Just, <laughs> um, I I think it's very fortunate that any of his voters even managed to put one front in front of the other mm-hmm. to, to put a vote in place. But yes, that was the the sort of society that they all grew up in. And it was just seen as the way things were. People were very just accepting. Um this is what one of the things that but at the same time, this was one of the things that was so magnetic about. Pitt the younger's father, that he was seen to rise above that. So when he became paymaster general in the 1740s, it was almost just taken as a given that you okay, you'd be the paymaster general, but you take a bit for yourself as well. Mm-hmm. He didn't do that. Right. And and he made that known in the papers that he didn't do that. He had his his accounts there for people to see that he hadn't been dipping in for himself. He wanted to, and this is something that he'd certainly impress upon his son and that his son, Pitt the Younger, would live up to, is the idea of very carefully cultivating his sense of public image and how he was perceived by the public at large.
0: Yeah, one of his nicknames was Honest Billy Mm. for not feathering his nest massively, for not embezzling public funds, in other words, because it was sort of, Part and parcel of politics, you sort of expected to do Well, I mean, not expected to do it, but it just was the done thing. Mm. Um, you know, Walpole uh, is a great example of, of something like that. But there's lots of paintings. You say it was colourful. Mm. Electioneering was colourful in the 18th century or 19th century even. Um, there's some obviously some great paintings by Hogarth. Um, showing sort of the uproarious nature of voting and that polls would be open for days on end mm. and um it, it, yeah and it was much much more venal corrupt um they had you know uh, rotten boroughs or pocket boroughs, yes um so you could sort of quite literally buy your way into parliament um so yeah, very different than it is today. You know, make a bit of a, a mockery of democracy as we might think of it, but nonetheless, mm. that was the world they lived in. Lived in, and so his father, right? Yes, uh, uh, Chatham. Because you mentioned there that he was sort of known as a champion of of the sort of normal working people, mm. but to, right at the end of his life, did take the title of of the Earl of Chatham, the first Earl of Chatham. Yes, and so. And the way it works is in English history is that you are known forevermore by your title, even if you spent your whole life untitled. If right at the end of your life you're ennobled or raised to the peerage in some sense, you are forever then known as. Well, he's known as just Chatham or the Earl of Chatham, usually. Yeah, you, d- you don't want to dead name, him.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did
0: exactly. Yeah. But he, he, uh, yeah, that was right at the end of his life.
1: Yes. Um, but so just in the in the context of uh, his. Account for himself in the Seven Years' War, though. Mm, mm. Obviously, what's so vital about the Seven Years' War is that that is the the beginning, the essence of bringing both Canada and India under the dominion of the British Empire. Which, you know, to to paraphrase, you know, John Peterson, that's not an insignificant thing. You know, that's enormous. And uh, in the in uh, 1759, um, Horace Walpole, son of um, Robert Walpole, former Prime Minister. Uh, wrote that uh, our bells are rung threadbare mm, mm. with the uh, with the sounds of victory. That was a very famous quote. And, it's a year um, of
0: miracles, wasn't it? Annus yeah. Mirabilis, a year of miracles. Yes, Captain Wolfe at the at the walls of Quebec. Mm. Um, so yeah, quickly just say on the Seven Years' War. Then um, that really did sort of accelerate a turbo acceleration of Britain becoming sort of a world-spanning global empire. Sort of the most powerful country in the world after the Seven Years' War, and Pitt the Younger's father, the Earl of Chatham, Pitt the Elder, was one of the prime ministers during that. And so to describe him as sort of a Winston Churchill of his day isn't much of an exaggeration. He was after that, he was considered uh, well a, a, a national hero on some level, a great great statesman. Absolutely, and I think Pitt was born. Was he born on the actual year of the *Annus Mirabilis*? He was born in actually Yes, in so, May
1: of nineteen seventeen fifty nine. Right. So in, his
0: whole formative years, his childhood, was that father, mm. daddy, is a is a great man. Yes. And the whole country look up to him as some sort of hero on some level, a political hero.
1: Papa is a bit of a legend in his own right. time. Right. Um, And yes, uh, so when uh, Pitt, the younger, who is the the second son, he's not the eldest, he's the second son, um, Chatham got, which I'm just going to refer to him as from now on, um, Chatham married quite late, actually, um, conventionally speaking, for the time. He didn't get married until he was in his 40s. And he married uh, Hester Grenville, and Hester, the Grenvilles were another very powerful political family at the time. Um, I believe it was William Grenville uh, was the uh, the prime minister after him, um, after uh, Chatham resigned in uh, uh, 1760. And so there is enormous weight behind both of his maternal and paternal family. Pitt grew up surrounded by a family of politicians, essentially.
0: Yeah, parliamentary aristocracy. Yeah. So both his father and his uncle, because Granville was his mother's brother, right? Mm. So both his uncle and his father had been prime minister.
1: Yes. It's not like a bad pedigree. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that'll do something for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so essentially, even from the age of seven, there are accounts of Pitt the Younger saying, I want to be in the Commons like Papa. I. Couldn't even begin to. Say, I think I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was seven, <laughs> and that's changed about five times over now. But uh, but he said that at seven, and seemed to single-mindedly dedicate himself to that pursuit for the rest of his life. Uh, he couldn't intertwine himself or even conceive of the idea of having a life outside of the commons and public service. But what's um, interesting and somewhat unconventional unconventional about uh, Pitt the Younger's upbringing is his father, Chatham, went to Eton and he didn't like it. He found it very austere and not very nurturing, Mm. actually.
0: Brutal. Yes.
1: Yeah. So all five of his children, uh, including the younger Pitt, were all homeschooled by the family tutor, Edward Wilson. And he was, Pitt was sort of marked from a very young age as being incredibly gifted. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. called him, sort of, uh, um, adorably called him the Senator (laughs) or, yeah, Impetuous William. Mm. You know, they sort of recognized from a young age that he had an incredible insight for uh, memory and and speech.
0: Yeah, very precocious. Mm. Um, I think Chatham said that. Um, if you're sort of a delicate boy, going to somewhere like Eton is it, it would sort of break you. Yes. I um, mean, he wanted to nurture, he wanted to nurture sort of the thoughtfulness in his sons mm. uh, without being too crude. I, I've seen uh, public British public schools even through the nineteenth century um, that you'd be beaten, maybe even sort of buggered. <laughs> Buggery and beatings is what you might expect yes. at a public school, so it's, you know, quite brutal, to be quite honest. Uh, uh, and he didn't want that for his sons. And of course, uh, well, not of course, but people might not know, Pete the Younger was quite delicate physically, Yes, quite weak. I think he was, quite a sickly, well, he was quite a sickly child, wasn't he?
1: Yes, and this is something that he'd have to contend with for, for most of his life. He inherited from his father gout. Um, which is, of course, uh, I mean, that's, well, one, incurable. It's not getting rid of it, certainly not in the the 1700s. And also the, as we'll see in a little while, the medical thesis at the time for how best to counteract it only compounded Mm. the issues of it. Mm. Um, So he, but Pitt always had in the, He he actually had a very idyllic childhood in many ways. He had a a father who absolutely doted on him. Uh, His mother was very warm, very compassionate, and very formidable Mm. in her own Mm. way and politically savvy. When um, Pitts, when Chatham became prime minister again, in the uh, in I believe it was sixty eight in seventeen sixty eight, he had a bit of a mental breakdown. Mm. And just to sort of give you an image of the sort of a woman that Pitt's mother was. Whilst um, Chatham was there breaking down and you know, having nervous breakdowns, invariably his, uh, his wife uh, just took over the correspondence and was constantly writing to ministers. He'd have the final say on what went on, but she was liaising on his behalf to, to raise herself up, to be that moral support that he needed in those, in those dark times. So Pitt's mother was also quite exceptional.
0: Yeah, liaising between her husband and the cabinet. Mm. So in a sense, well, in a very real direct sense, doing some of the business of government yes. at the very, very pinnacle of government. Yes. Um So, yeah, she must have been an absolutely formidable woman, the Lady Grenville. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, you say he had an idyllic child, and I think so, in all sorts of ways. And you say his father doted on him. I think that's absolutely true. But also they sort of demanded... Very, very high standards from him. I mean, to to you or I, a normal person in the twenty first century, insanely high standards. I mean, yes. he was expected. The, you know, the um, he had. There's there's a first class education, and then there's the education pit the Younger had, mm. sort of another level.
1: Oh yeah, he was for expected
0: sure. to be able to um, uh, to pass ancient Greek and Latin, sort of perfectly as a, a child. What we would think of as a small child by yes. the age of seven or nine be completely perfect with your Latin and Greek and things Um, Mm. So, uh, well, no no wonder he was considered a great orator by the time he was in his early 20s because he'd been groomed for exactly that, really I mean, his father Chatham knew what it took to be a success in Parliament and sort of moulded him to be exactly that, really, I think
1: Yeah, he did and uh, even at the age of seven, he was Pitt was writing to his father in Latin, yeah. letters in Latin, and his father would every night get him to, as you say, read a piece of classical Greek in its um, in its original language, and then just stand there until he could summon the English version of the word and say it. And if he couldn't find the word, then he simply didn't speak that level of, of discipline. So yes, his, his father did, as you say, dote on him, but he also put sort of all of his political hopes on him mm. as well. Um, when Pitt was thirteen, he wrote a political play <laughs> for his family, not for public viewing, but just for his family, and all five of the children acted it out <laughs> for but he even at the young age, he was constantly asking for for newspapers and for news from around the world. He was very Even, you know, before he was even a teenager, he was asking about what's going on in the colonies with all of these uh, tax hikes and everything. Isn't this Mm -hmm. going to upset them a bit? You Mm -hmm. know, he was very uh, politically astute and his dad would ask him for takes. On the current news, even as a child That's
0: interesting, isn't it? Yeah That a statesman of the sort of calibre of Chatham Would ask his teenage son Mm. What do you think? And take his opinion seriously as well Yes So I think, you know, it's a bit unfair Or not unfair, it's true But to call him precocious I don't mean that in sort of a particularly disparaging way Although he must have been exactly that A very precocious child (laughs) Which is, I find, usually most people find a bit annoying But by the time you're a teenager though um. And your opinion is genuinely worth something. I mean, mm-hmm. it's quite incredible, really. I, he, he's a, it's fair to call him a genius on some level. Mm. Um, he's certainly a remarkable mind, a remarkable character. I don't think there's any way to avoid that. Uh, one other thing I'd like to say about sort of his childhood was that, and uh, we already sort of touched on it or very nearly, is that he was a bit sickly. wasn't sort of bedridden for months or years on end, but he was still, you know, fairly delicate. And um, the doctors thought that um, uh, a steady dose of, of port wine would sort you out. Port. Yes. Um, if anyone doesn't know, port is sort of fortified red wine. Red wine and brandy. Yes. Is what it is. So it's sort of no joke, really. It's sort of quite a se- serious drink. Yes. And and he's as a small child, as sort of a seven, eight, nine-year-old, sort of getting drunk quite a lot on port.
1: Yes. Uh, and this was um, to go back to what I was saying about sort of the, the medically accepted thesis of the time. The, uh, I'm not a medical man, I couldn't speak to it in any great detail, but the general theory behind the idea was uh, obviously within the body there are, there are certain toxins mm. that are making you ill. Mm. And obviously um, alcohol contains its own category of toxins. So that by ingesting the alcohol, what you're actually doing is you're replacing those toxins that are making you ill with the toxins that alcohol puts in, and your body can handle those much better. So replacing one toxin that you can't deal with with a toxin that you can deal with. Um, Fluff. Complete nonsense. (laughs) But but that's what they thought.
0: Yeah, the 18th century still medical science is very primitive still. Mm. Um, I think it's really only in the 20th century medical sciences come on absolute leaps and bounds. So still in the 18th century, I don't think, I'm not sure if they still really had the sort of more medieval concept of the four humours. Mm. Uh, but they're not much beyond that. Like the idea that you give a little kid port to sort of, to, for, well, it's good for his health. Um, yeah. And later in life, I'm sure we'll touch on this again, but he never stopped drinking pulp. He was—he was a massive. Poor. They called him a three-bottle-a-day man. Didn't they, they did. So. They
1: did call him a three-bottle-a-day man. Uh, but just as a um, as a point of, uh, when you look at um, William Hague's biography of Pitt, he did a little. Um, Bit of research on that, where he went and found that the um, what we would describe as a three as a bottle today was not of the same size as they were back then. For example, the punt at the bottom was uh, went further up, and the actual uh, thickness of the glass was more, and the bottle was a little bit shorter. So uh, it would have been three bottles back then, but by our equivalence now, it would have been about uh, two two and a quarter bottles. Which, don't get me wrong, is still a considerable amount. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't do it every day for the rest of
0: my life. Yeah, yeah. I think also they didn't put as much brandy in it as we do now. Mm. So the idea now of drinking three bottles of port in a day, every day, day on day, to me anyway, I'm not a big drinker. No. I'm not teetotal, but I'm not a big drinker. But three bottles of port, I'd, I'd be really drunk, maybe puke. Uh, it's a lot of, of, of drink. Uh, but as you say, it's not the same as the, as, as the port we have now, uh, but still two bottles of wine, red wine, um, I'd be a bit sloshed Yeah, and, and, uh, and if you have to speak um, in the House of
1: Commons every day right.
0: and, it, and that's the other thing, every day as well, Yeah. Um, every day, day after day It's one of those things where you become really an, an alcoholic, where you can't really yeah. function without it, it becomes just a habit
1: which is absolutely unequivocally what happened to him mm. in the end. But so when he was 14, um, he, he went to Cambridge,
0: oh, yeah. uh, to Pembroke
1: yeah. College.
0: Yeah, Pembroke man.
1: Yeah. And that was, again, unconventional for the time. Um, yes, you could go younger, but, um, but even uh, going at 14, as Pitt did, which was fully endorsed by the private tutor, Edward, uh, Wilson, who told his parents, no, no, he's ready for it. I've got no doubts that he's going to be fine. Um, and Pitt went there for about two weeks. And that's when he became seriously ill. Mm-hmm. And that uh, he had a real, um, real development in his gout. And that's when he, he, so he was there for two weeks, came straight back home. Uh, oh, and by the way, I should probably re- um, explain, so home for Pitt, where he actually grew up, was in um, Hayes in Bromley, which was sort of the where one of their houses was. Uh, one of their houses. Uh, the other one was, at, um, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce it, Pinsent. Um, yeah, Pinsent, I think, towards uh, the Cornish, you know, districts okay. of, of England. But um, yeah, in Hayes, so in Kent. So he'd grown up around the Kentish area. And so he came back to Hayes, and that's when his doctor, uh, Dr. Anthony uh, Addington, uh, who was the father of a man who would become his lifelong Mm. friend, Henry Addington, who will become much more important in the story later on. Uh, And Henry, young Henry, knew Pitt from a very early age, very early age, they were childhood friends. Uh, But yes, that's where the doctor prescribed him uh, port every day, exercise and early nights. No more no more reading classical literature <laughs> until two in the morning, Mr. <laughs> Pitt. You know, stop that.
0: And if anyone knows anything about gout, um drinking lots and lots of pulp is probably among the worst things you could do. It's not a good idea. No. It doesn't cure gout no. drinking loads of port. No. Yeah, so no real concept of what was actually good for him, but, I mean, there you go, mm. it's the 18th century. Yes. Um, but yeah, going up to Cambridge at 14, not unheard of. Um, uh, There's lots of people in sort of the uh, 17th, 18th and 19th century who would go up at that young age or perhaps even slightly younger. Still, though, mm. even though it's not unheard of, it's still quite remarkable. Yes, it is. Um, you, you would still usually be 17 or 18 or 19 before you, you go out to Oxford or Cambridge usually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, you, would, you, could only, um, you could only take from that that he's sort of uh, unusually intelligent. Um, and yeah, not to be um, swamped by it, not to sort of fail, he could absolutely mm. um, hold himself in that sort of intellectual atmosphere. He made lots of friends at Cambridge, or a few friends at Cambridge that remained friends for his whole life.
1: Lifelong friends, um, Edward Elliot, uh, George Rose, um, his uh, junior fellow uh, sort of mentor, uh, George Preterman, and uh, probably most famously of all, uh, William Wilberforce. And um, I was, um, just as a slight tangent, I was so glad that you and Kyle decided to do an epoch on William Wilberforce, because a bit like Pitt, he's also a name that's Disappearing now, and I come from just very near to Hull, so he's sort of always been sort of in my consciousness, and certainly around the schools that I I grew up in, his name was very common, and it was quite a shock to see when you go further afield how how fast his name disappears. Hmm. So, I think in those sort of formative years, or slightly later formative years, your teenage
0: years, um, sometimes you form the strongest. Friendships, the strongest bonds with people. Mm. Um, I saw it somewhere. It was a joke. I think it might be on Family Guy or something, American <laughs> Dad or something. Where they said that your close family and lovers come and go, but the kids you went to school with are forever. <laughs> sort yeah. of, sort of the way. I mean, I've still got my, a lot of my closest friends are kids I went to secondary school with. Right. Uh, you know, and so um, uh, yeah, you sort of form extremely close bonds. Well, a lot of people do anyway. Not they everyone, do. but. Um, and so, yeah, like Wilberforce and a few other people were his mentor there. Mm. He was his mentor for sort of the rest of his life, really. Yes. Uh, what was his name again? Pris- George Pretteman. Preterman, yeah. Yeah. So some of those relationships um, absolutely stayed with him. And um, well, so one thing just to zoom out, just to make mm. sort of a broader point before we go on, is that where he became um, not just an MP, but a, a, a senior member of the government by the time he was 23 and again, as we've said, PM by 24. And then he does that really for sort of the rest of his life. There's a hiatus in there towards the end, mm. but he, he dies quite young, right? What is he? 46? 46, 46. Right. Yes. Um, whilst, Spoiler alert. While still PM. Mm. So the point I was just going to make there is that um, it's, it's sort of his, his, his whole adult life or his whole life and, um, so he only had his childhood, he had that bit of childhood there where you can form friends. Because if you're extremely powerful or extremely rich, yes. um, I've, I've never had to worry about this myself. Uh, but you, it's, it's, uh, it, with, I'm told it's quite difficult to form true friendships and bonds with people because you never know what they want from you.
1: Mm. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotusedis.com.